Today's lesson was recorded on October 5th, 2023. This lesson is part of our series on the good news. What do you mean by good news? And how would that phrase, good news, been understood in the first century within that Roman Empire? Now, today's lesson is one I've wanted to do for a while. Now, it took me a little bit longer to put this together, and I apologize for that. But I think you'll see that this lesson covers a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a human being, the suffering it causes us, and how Christianity alone offers the answer to alleviate that suffering. And it's with Christianity alone that the individual is regenerated. And through this regeneration, we're able to transcend what you'll see these two authors call the terror or the guilt of history. So I think you'll really enjoy this topic. I want to say a special thank you to all the donors listening worldwide. Your support and prayers mean the world to me and my family. God continues to affirm my calling for this ministry in extraordinary ways that only God can do, and I couldn't do any of this without your financial support. Thank you for your partnership. I've heard from many of you about the sense you have that there's infinitely more to the Bible than we can imagine, and I share this same notion. Each time God gives me new insight, it's like a little bit of manna from heaven. It bolsters the soul. And in this regard, we're fellow travelers down the same path of discovery. With every lesson I prepare, my prayer is that your faith will be strengthened as you gain new insight into the meaning of the Bible. Now, Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit and we're fully listener supported. The mission of Fig Tree Ministries matches my personal mission statement to help people along their journey to go deeper into the Bible and discover the profound nature of Scripture. If you appreciate all you've learned about the Bible through Fig Tree Ministries, please donate to the ministry. We have a donation link below in the show notes. You can make a one time gift or become a monthly donor. Thank you for considering a gift to Fig Tree Ministries. Your generous support ensures we can continue to produce the Bible education lessons you love. We hope you enjoy today's lesson on the rise of the imperial man and how Jesus is the authentic king and savior of the world. And it's only through him that we as individuals regenerate and are able to transcend the inherent suffering that's found in the world. So we're getting close to wrapping up our series on the good news. What was the original good news or what was the good news? What would they have thought in the first century? And as we've repeatedly said, the good news is about the kingdom of God. And this, you can find it in Isaiah 52, 7. And the good news is that of God returning to Jerusalem to reign as king. And this was good news for Jerusalem and it would eventually be good news for the world. Because we note that the prophets tell us eventually the entire world is going to be worshiping God as their king. So it's about the kingdom. And then we note it in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is about kingdoms. Who's actually in charge? And then what seems to be this strange chapter, Daniel 7, well, we noted that there's one like the Son of Man who's actually sharing the throne with God. This Son of Man has the authority to reign, and the kingdom of this Son of Man is everlasting. So the Old Testament then 
speaks of one like the Son of Man who's coming to co-reign with God over all creation, and his reign is for eternity. And then we get to the first century BC and the Roman Empire, and an individual known to history as Caesar Augustus. And here's an artist's depiction of Caesar Augustus on the throne in his royal robes. And in week four of this series on the good news, we explored the propaganda surrounding Caesar Augustus. And what we used was an inscription that was found. It was found in what in modern-day Turkey, but it was a city called Priene. And that inscription speaks of Caesar Augustus as a savior, as a god, whose birth was good news for the world. And it's during this reign, the reign of Augustus. Now, that reign lasted from 27 BC all the way to 14 AD. It's during his reign that Jesus enters the world. And Paul, he writes in Galatians, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son. What time? Why then? Why did God wait until this moment to send his son? I mean, we know that God's timing is never off, so there has to be something there. I've said this before, but if Jesus is vital to salvation of the world, why not send him earlier? Why wait? But the time had fully come. And so one of the reasons that we've looked at before and that we're going to look at again tonight is it has to do with Caesar Augustus, no doubt, because that's when Jesus was born but also the rise of imperial man and what imperial man was supposed to be able to do for humanity that the Caesars never could. And so what we're going to look at is that human beings have long been in search of an imperial man, uh, imperial man, uh, someone who shares the authority of the heavens, who has the power, the agency to bring order to the chaos of the world, a savior. And the kings of the East had long claimed the power of the heavens. They all took titles such as Savior. So I want to take you through a 30,000-foot view of how thinking, both individual and the collective, because in the ancient world it was mostly the collective, how it progresses over time, and it's how people view the nature of the cosmos. Their worldview, in a way, the way that they view the cosmos and then the religious traditions that they come up with, that they're embodied and they're expressing the conception of the cosmos and what they want to happen. Okay. Now, to do this, I want to provide you with two references. So the first one, this is a book by the author is Mircea Eliade, and it's called The Myth of the Eternal Return. So this book was published in 1954 in English. Um, he's actually Romanian. But it's a classic study of the history of religions and how people view the cosmos. Now, one of the things Eliot is writing in the 40s to the 50s, and he wants to write about, and we're going to do this in this lesson, what he calls the terror of history. And you, could, you can imagine that his, his desire to write about this is obviously shaped by World War II in Europe and the tragedy of what took place there. But nonetheless, we're going to talk about this tragedy of history. Now, what's very interesting about this book is he notes that 
there's a way of thinking about the world, and it's original the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is in that same primitive culture, that's where it's born out of, and then the New Testament, it sets forth a new way of looking at the cosmos, and they're fundamentally responsible for changing the way people think about reality and the terror, the tragedy of history. And for me, this book provided, it was profound insight. It still is, every time I read it, into why our Bible is so important as a book, what it does to the way that people think or the way that people did think. And in many ways, we've completely lost this in our discussion of the Bible or in our Judeo-Christian worldview. Okay, and then the second book we're going to look at well, it takes a similar tack, and this one is called Christ and the Caesars by Ethelbert Stoffer. And the focus of this book is the rise of imperial man. That's where I'm getting my title for this lesson. And how this rise of the imperial man is manifested in the Caesars and, of course, Caesar Augustus. Now, Stoffer is going to trace the arc of history and talk about why humanity is looking for a type of Messiah, a savior someone who's endowed with the powers of both heaven and earth, someone who has a correspondence in the heavens that gives them the power to control the chaotic forces of this world. And this is what people have been longing for, right? To be able to control outcomes, which we can't. To eliminate suffering, which we can't always. To create a future of our own making, a, a new heavens and a new earth, so to speak. And like Eliad, this book also, Stoffer is also going to deal with the tragedy or guilt, as he calls it, the guilt of history, and how Christianity provides the answer to this vexing problem. So for both of these books, I've provided links below in the show notes, and really you cannot go wrong purchasing either one. They each provide a wealth of information. It'll really help you understand the context out of which our faith arises. Okay. So let's start then with this idea, the concept of cosmic reality. In the ancient world, the ancient mind viewed the cosmos as a great repeating cycle. And what you see in the book, Mercia Eliad, the, the, the myth of the eternal return, everything is returning back to the beginning of time. Everything at some point needs to be remade or reborn. The way the ancient mind viewed this is that everything is contained within this great cycle. Nothing new can be created or added to it. Now, there are attributes of this type of thinking that we need to recognize. Um, the first one is, is that people become very fatalistic. Hey, if it was meant to be that you were to suffer, then who am I to step in and change things or fix things? because that's just the way it was meant to be. Everything continues to repeat. And so there's no attempt to change things for the better. We just reflect what's playing out in the heavens. Don't change anything. And there are still fatalistic uh, societies or religions in the world today, and uh, dominated by this way of thinking, and things can be quite chaotic. They're very slow to make progress. The second one that comes out of that is there's no personal responsibility or agency. Now, it doesn't mean that within any culture there aren't personal responsibilities. But the whole point is, is that there's no motivation that when you see something broken, that you try to fix it. 
So if the world can't be changed, why should I attempt it? What if I mess up the cycle by changing things? So what do you do? Well, you don't want to suffer, so you try to gain power for yourself. You want to have as good a life as you can, prosper and live long. And oh, by the way, if that's at the expense of someone else, well, you can't fix that. And then what you end up with is that suffering and injustice is not your problem. And as I mentioned before, fatalistic societies have very little progress. There's no reason to step out and attempt to fix something. They're slow moving. Okay, so that's, that's the ancient mind. And what's so powerful is that God, well, it's God in the Bible, but God and the Bible are going to break this cycle. For God and our biblical text, there's a calling out of this cycle and into a reality of personal responsibility, a move to alleviate or eliminate suffering of righteous action on our part. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. And just as God is a creator, we're able, we have agency to create a better reality right here. And that's what God wants us to accept, to take that on. We can see it in something like the story of Abraham. So in Genesis 12, as the story of Abraham begins, it's a story of being called out. This isn't just about changing your geographical location. Abraham is called out of his country, your kindred, your father's household. This is a call to a new way of being. Not just, I'm going to bring you to a particular place. And there's a goal in all of this. Now, it's God is going to take Abraham somewhere. In this case, there's physical land, but it's also metaphorical. So it's a new way of being that breaks out of that cycle. Now, what does Abraham have to do? Well, it's simple. Genesis 18, 19, he says, For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And that's what we're called to do. It's a call to responsibility. It's a call to recognize our agency in the world. When we see a broken world, we fix it. And you can envision Abraham arguing with God, God, the judge of the world. Why are you going to destroy Sodom? What if there's one person there who's righteous? Okay, now if we go back to this, we go back to our great cycle here. The Bible then is going to call humanity out of this great cycle. It's going to put us on a path of progress, and it's going to set for us a goal. In Greek, the telos. What's the end state? How does the Bible refer to this? Well, it could be the promised land. Initially, this is, that's both physical land, it's also metaphorical. It's the kingdom of God. It's God's reign right here on earth. What does that look like? And so to enter that kingdom of God becomes the goal or the telos of a Christian. But also, Jesus, the Christ, is the telos. And we, we are Christians, little Christs. And we're supposed to conform our own being into a Christ-likeness, to become like the king in our own little dominion. Not to reign over people so I can have power but to live in that moment as in the kingdom of God. Just like the image that God originally intended us to be, creators like Adam were supposed to be, have dominion in our own little way. You know, Paul, he even says, 
Christ is the telos of the law. Jesus was sinless, right? If you took, if you encapsulated the Torah and then put it into a human being, that's what that means. He's perfectly fits the Torah. He's the archetype of what humanity was supposed to be. Now, this isn't just as individuals, right? Because it's us as community, a society. And as each individual transforms, we have an effect on the, on the community around us. And then ultimately on society and then humanity as a whole. And you can see, we obviously have a long way to go on this, but this is the importance of what's, being, what's happening with our Bible. Okay? Now, if we go back to this great cycle here, as I mentioned, to the ancient mind, everything is contained within the cosmos, and the cosmos is turning in these huge cycles. And so everything is contained in it, and therefore nothing new can be brought in. Now, there's a problem, though. And the problem is that something is being introduced, or something was introduced, or something can be introduced. And this is where we get into the idea of the terror of history, or the guilt of history, as Stoffer puts it. Because we don't exist in a perfect cycle that we can then go through a ritual to, to eliminate time and regenerate. We exist across time. And this is so important for us to recognize. This is like the beginning of wisdom, to recognize that we exist across time. So we exist, and in every moment, moment by moment, God gives us moment by moment. But in those moments, we're bounded by all kinds of limitations. We have limitations in our body. We're going to die someday. We have limitations even in our physicalness, meaning we can be hurt. We have limitations in knowing. We can't know all information. We can't know the possible outcomes that are going to happen. We can't know the future. I mean, honestly, we barely understand ourselves. And so sometimes, you know, people behave. They don't even know why they're behaving. As the, the pressures of the world push in on them, they're reacting in ways that could be compulsive. And, you know, people can end up acting out in ways that they regret because you don't understand why am I acting that way. But every moment we must act. We have to make decisions. We have to act in the moment. And so what happens is we then move off into the future. But now the future is the present and we have something in the past. And sometimes those actions that are now in our past end up being detrimental to our well-being in the present. And what makes matters worse is that hindsight is twenty-twenty, So we can see how we should have acted. We should have zigged when we zagged. We can see, perhaps, not always, how we could have acted differently. Okay, but then we're stuck again, because once again, we must act in the present. And then once again, we have missteps and we make mistakes. Why? Because we have limitations. We don't know everything. And so we keep moving into the future. Well, you can imagine that once you get into a certain point, we look backwards upon these failures, missteps, and the way we refer to them as sin. And I'm using sin, one of the Hebrew. Hebrew has a number of words for sin. The most popular one means to go off the path. That's the conceptual idea, to miss the mark. The Greek is to miss the mark, like an archery term. But the Hebrew, to go off the path. 
And what it means is, you know, I was aiming at life. I was aiming to get it right, but I failed to hit their target. I went off the path. And this can be intentional or it can be unintentional. It doesn't matter. But, you know, sometimes in life, we just find ourselves off the path. I mean, one of the best examples of this going off the path is Paul. Now, before he was Paul, he was known as Shaul, Saul. But Shaul, he thinks he's doing the right thing. He's zealot-minded, but he doesn't think he's disobeying God. He thinks that the Christians are an affront to God. And so what he wants to do is stop them from doing that, because he's going to try to protect the honor of God. But he was wrong. Now, he didn't do it intentionally. He didn't know he was off the path until Jesus woke him up on the, on the road to Damascus. But it's a great, it's unintentional sin. And so when you look back at your failures, particularly if you cause pain to others, or even if we know we did something that we shouldn't have done, but we did it anyways, and these sins become a burden, a weight, they drag us down, they sap our mental and emotional energy, they sap our life force is what they do when I say mental and emotional energy. They sap our life force. And so in the ancient world, sin, right, whether, you, whether it's knowing or unknowing, intentional or unintentional, it doesn't matter. They noticed something about sin is that it had weight to it. You can feel it. To the ancient mind, sin had thingness to it. It was an actual thing that was created. Why? Because I can feel the weight, right? We use phrases like, it weighs heavy on my mind. Well, what's the weight? Where did it come from? So sin is a burden. But where does sin get its thingness to make it feel like a burden, right? It means that something was created. Something was created that wasn't there before. I didn't have this burden yesterday, and now I have it today. So something was created. Now, check out, there's a book. It's called Sin. That's a great name for a book on sin. Sin, a History by Gary Anderson. Excellent book if you want to think of, if you want to read about how the ancients conceptualized sin. Okay. We see this all the time. The world is a complex place. But we see this all the time in very complex disciplines like politics or even in medicine. Politicians, well, I thought it was a good idea to go to war until I realized it wasn't. I voted for the war before I voted against the war. Well, I didn't have the information at first. In, in medicine, we see this. I love looking up the history of medicine. Like, you go back 100 years or 200 years and you, you see what the medicine was of that day and you think, my goodness, I'm glad I don't live then. All of those medical professionals, doctors and scientists, they thought they were correct. And then we look back today and you go, hmm, it probably wasn't a good idea to give someone heroin because they had a cough. Or like, we realize today that giving people lobotomies, which was very popular and thought was, everybody was agreed was the right thing to do, is not a humane way to treat them. I mean, even something closer to today, you know, if you were a doctor and you were told that OxyContin wasn't addictive, but you prescribed it for a patient and then the patient became addicted and died. And then years later, it comes out and you realize the truth 
and you recognize your part in somebody's death, it can be a terrible burden to deal with. When people begin to see your sins, right? You missed the mark. You didn't do it intentionally. You thought you were doing the right thing, but it ended up being wrong. That's why it's the terror, the guilt of history. And this can so easily happen with the collective, with the group, groupthink or group mentality, mob mentality. God is pro-individual, but God's not real excited about groups because there's a collective nature when we follow a group that we can make mistakes and not even realize it. I mean, think about it. All you have to do is go to Nazi Germany and think about the psychological pain that was endured by irregular, everyday Germans that supported the Nazi regime, only to find out the horrors that were taking place. And so the Bible's concerned about this. Read Leviticus chapter 4. It's all about unintentional sin. When you realize you are sinning, then you go through the process. Confession, repentance, sacrifice. Now, either way, my point is this. In the ancient world, they noticed something about sin, that it had a weight. You can feel it. Something was introduced. Intentional, unintentional, it all becomes the horror, the tragedy, or the guilt of history. So something is created. And what is created, and this is really important for us to understand about human beings, is there are three negative emotions that can reside in the depths of the soul. And it's guilt, shame, and regret. And they're negative because the, ex the mere existence of them within our soul always has a negative consequence. So you have shame over something. Guilt or the regret, right? They become a burden. They become the weight. And we introduce them into our world very often because our actions in the present aren't what they should have been. There's a reason Las Vegas chooses a model. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, which is not always true. Your money stays in Vegas, but you might bring something else home. Right? I went to Vegas, and now I'm dealing with negative emotions of guilt, shame, regret. I wish I wouldn't have lost all my money. And so these sins, this new thingness that is now a weight, a burden on your soul, has to be dealt with. And so the actions of our past, known or unknown, intentional or unintentional, we can label them as sin. We missed the mark. We went off the path. I thought I was doing what was correct, but then I realized that it made things worse. And, you know, I went to Adobe Photos and I just typed in sin and look at the first thing that popped up. It's a ball and chain. This is how we associate sin with weight and thingness. And so when our past becomes this thing that's weighing us down, as it does for all humanity, we need two things, okay? The first thing we need is judgment. And judgment, this is not the final judgment. This is everything must be brought into the light to be seen for what it is. And this is part in part how confession works. I was hiding this from you, God, and now I'm verbally acknowledging my actions, my sin, and now I can begin to see my sin for what it is. It's been brought into the light. Okay? That's judgment. Everything must come into the light to be judged for what it is. And then, second, 
we need forgiveness. And forgiveness is a process of releasing, period. That's what it is. Forgiveness is releasing. And the thing, the thingness that you're releasing is the weight that was created. And even look at this picture when I put in Adobe Photos for forgiveness. The chains are broken. The chains that were hindering me are now broken. That's what forgiveness does. And so, folks, here we have our Bible. Jesus is called a judge. In the book of Acts, when they talk about Jesus being resurrected and then ascending into the heavens, he's there to be a perfect judge. He's the sinless one who has the authority to judge. He brings all things into light, into judgment. But he also has the power to forgive. And so, judgment and forgiveness together. That's salvation. And it's not just about, hey, one day in the afterlife, I'm going to get forgiveness so I get to heaven. No, it's right now in this life. That's what people are dealing with. He has the power to bring salvation, to judge all actions and forgive. And so what happens is that Jesus becomes the authentic Savior. He has the authority to judge and the power to forgive, and so therefore you experience salvation in the moment. Now, again, it doesn't negate forgiveness and salvation in the end or even the final judgment, but we have to recognize the power of Christianity in the present to change people's lives. And I think the reason that Christianity exploded isn't because this idea wasn't there before, it was that you finally had the creator of the world, the one who created your soul, and can actually uh, cause the effect of salvation on your very soul. Because everybody's dealing with the same issue. All are sinners, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so when people experienced forgiveness, judgment and forgiveness in the light of Jesus, he was able to not only forgive, but to heal your soul. And that experience changed the world. It set everybody on a different course, okay? Now, what I want to do is I want to provide for you a historical um, example of what I mean by this. So there's a king. Uh, his name was Croesus, King Croesus. And King Croesus was wealthy, and he was powerful, and he was over the Lydian Empire. And the painting you see there on the left, that's actually Aesop. Aesop was in the court of King Croesus, you know, of Aesop's fable. And so the Lydian Empire is what we would call today Turkey. But he was considered the wealthiest person in the world, and with wealth comes power. And there's an expression, as rich as Croesus. Maybe you've heard of that. But that's how rich he was. He even got an expression named after him because of his wealth. In fact, even in our modern day, uh, there's contemporary examples of this from The Simpsons of all places. Mr. Burns, who happens to be the wealthiest person in town, where does he live? At the corner of Croesus and Mammon. And so this powerful, wealthy king, he's still remembered today as someone who was fabulously wealthy. Now, there was a problem, as is the, the problem with all humanity. He wanted to know if he should go to war with the Persians. The Persians at that time were led by Cyrus the Great. So what he does, because he can't tell the future, right? He has all the same limitations as every other human being. 
And he says, I'll go to a fortune teller. Now, back then it was the Oracle of Delphi. I'm going to receive a word from the gods. Now, the Oracle at Delphi, this was one of the greatest oracles in the world. You know, just like a good fortune teller is, they're sufficiently ambiguous. And the message that he gets from the oracle is, a great empire will fall. And so Croesus, with all of his wealth and power that he has, he still has to make a decision. And he thinks that it's the Persian Empire that will fall. And so he goes to war and his empire is defeated. Now, we're so, sometimes we hear these stories and we, we don't think about what the human condition goes through when something like that happens, particularly on the world stage. Imagine the shame, the regret, right? Rethinking your decision over and over and over. All of your wealth, all of your power couldn't save you. And as history goes, many scholars believe that Croesus ended up committing suicide by throwing himself on the pyre. This is a, a vase of Croesus on the funeral pyre. Now, there's a debate over that, but the point is, the lesson of Croesus is you can have all the money and the power in the world, and you're still going to suffer from the guilt of history based on your, your actions. And so now we have Croesus as a cautionary tale of what can happen, how a downfall can happen so quickly. Now, what happens over time, just to let you know what happens over time, because they want to regenerate time, certain times of the year, it's just like a New Year's celebration. Everything descends into like the unstructured mass. That's the, you know, the, the unstructuredness of the beginning of creation, only to be reborn into the next year where everyone's going to resolve to live differently. But there, there are ceremonies that are going to purge the sins. You're going to purge the past in order to be born again. Now, the problem is, is that any old ceremony, right, doesn't have the efficacy to deal with your conscience. It actually doesn't solve the problem that we need. We need the judgment and forgiveness. We need the illumination of our sin, what did we do in the past, and then the forgiveness of that sin. And so you can do that ceremony all you want, and you're still weighed down by the guilt. And I think that's where the author of Hebrews is going, that, hey, look, each year you can offer these sacrifices, but it doesn't change your conscience. You're still weighed down by the guilt. Okay, so this leads us to the imperial man, because the idea was this. look. We realize that something negative can be introduced here. So why can't something positive, say a human being, a king, somebody who's endowed with power from the heavens, who can be beneficial to mankind? And you have throughout the ancient world these kings who were deemed to be godlike, who could bring order to the chaos, except the problem is they couldn't. It didn't last. They had all the same failings as every other human being. It was all a mirage. And so our Bible with the book of Exodus, and the Pharaoh, who was said to be divine, right? And then God shows up and shows him whose kingdom is actually in charge. And all throughout the Old Testament, you have gods that, are, that think that they're 
or I'm sorry, kings that think that they're gods. And then we get to the, to the Roman Empire and the imperial cult in Caesar, particularly Caesar Augustus. With each new ruler, and this is what they wanted to do with Caesar Augustus, with each new ruler, it was as if time was being renewed. If you remember from our lesson on Caesar Augustus, that inscription that they found at Priene, talking about the birth of Caesar Augustus as good news of the world, that the inscription, they want to start a new calendar system. Time has been reborn. You set up a new calendar, a new age. The past is gone, the future awaits. And again, it's all well and good, but it doesn't alleviate your conscience. Your past is not being judged and forgiven. It's only the sinless one, the judge of the world, who can illuminate your sin to show you, to judge it and forgive it. And that transforms your conscience as well. And then you as an individual are actually being regenerated. And this is the, what's happening with Christianity. So the Bible is anti-imperial man. And what you see is this rise of the idea of the imperial man, then Caesar Augustus, whose birth was good news for the world. And it's at this very moment that God sends his son, Yeshua, with the power to save into the picture. And really, by the time the gospel's going out to the Roman Empire, the Caesars couldn't keep their promises. They continued to fail from Tiberius to Caligula to Nero. You have the year of the four Caesars. That was chaotic. People are longing for a savior, a king who couldn't fail. And that's what Jesus is. He can judge perfectly and forgive your sins. And now you're a new, regenerated individual inside this kingdom, this kingdom of God. Now, what I want to do is wrap it up with a couple quotes from Mircea Eliad in his book, The Myth of the Eternal Return. Now, Eliad is not writing specifically as a Christian. And this is not, this book is not an apology for Christianity. It's a survey of the history of religion and rituals. But when he gets to the end, when he gets to the end of his analysis, his conclusion is that for humanity, who deals with the terror or guilt of history, who's looking for ways to release the past, to renew time, but can't find a way. It's the rise of Christianity. It actually begins with, the, with Judaism in the Old Testament. But the decisive events are Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom of God, and not simply the renewal of time, but the renewal of the individual who's now able to rise above, able to transcend that which hinders us, and it's ultimately to a level of freedom that they've never seen, but we've never seen before. And this changes the course of the whole world. And so here's what he says about the kingdom of God. He writes this. He says, in Christianity, the evangelical tradition itself implies that the kingdom of God is already present among those who believe, and that hence the, well, elude tempest, the sacred time, it's eternally present. The paradise to live in the kingdom of God, it's eternally present and it's accessible to anybody at any moment through repentance. And this introduces a whole new way of looking at things and one that can regenerate a human being. Okay, he goes on. He says this. He says, The horizon of the archetypes and repetition cannot be transcended 
right? So you cannot rise above the way that the, the world thought about things unless we accept a philosophy of freedom that does not exclude God. And he says, and indeed this proves to be true when the horizons of archetype and repetition was transcended for the first time by Judeo-Christianism, which introduced a new category into religious experience, the category of faith. Not just ritual, but faith at any moment. And he says, since what is involved is faith, Christianity translates this periodic regeneration of time, that's the regeneration of, of the world, into a regeneration of the human being. Someone is born again. And so the world is looking for imperial man, someone who can regenerate time and bring about a new order. This is what was said about Caesar Augustus, but the problem was it wasn't true. It didn't work. Sin or the effects of sin continued on. The guilt and the terror of history continued. And then came the true king. And this is what's so powerful about the Bible. Why this is such an important book is it breaks free of that cycle, puts us on a path towards the goal. And the, the goal, of course, is this Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus the judge can illuminate our sin, judge it, and then forgive it. And then we get, it's the regeneration of men and women as individuals. And we have the power and the agency to step out and create a world, to change things, to alleviate or eliminate suffering where possible, because we have the ability to create and the responsibility to do so. It's the regeneration of the soul. It gives us that power. And this is just not something on paper, right? It's a forgiveness that is you experience. And it's the experiential was so powerful to that early church. And it's later when we get the authority that added dogmas into this experiential religion that we start to lose something. Because this forgiveness, there's authentic freedom and thus a new beginning. So the time had fully come. Humanity was ready. Humanity was looking for that imperial man, and they were ready to accept it. And it's at that moment that God sends his son, the incarnated heavenly man, comes down to earth as a human being. And this is why the New Testament is going head to head with those Caesars and that imperial cult, because which one has the authentic power? And it's this big question that we've been saying throughout this whole series, who do you call Lord? Everybody has to do that. Because if you don't have God and the ability to for judge, forgive in an efficacious manner, you will suffer under the weight, the terror, the guilt of history. And so this is what our Bible provides us. It's salvation and freedom that can be had at any moment as we turn and continue to stay on the path and inside that kingdom of God. It's available to all humanity at all times.